This last week I was actually on vacation. I was up north. And uh, I was reflecting back on kind of other vacations that I've been on, and, um, at least this last year. And I was reminded of a trip um, that I took to, uh, to Park City, Utah on a ski trip. Now, I'm not good. Like, I suck at snowboarding, and I, I'm just terrible. And, uh, and I learned to get down the mountain and all that, whatever it is. But I was kind of coming down the mountain and glancing at kind of the, this beautiful scenery and just kind of carefully making my way down the, the hill. And I was looking at the, kind of the, the, the birds and the trees and the snow and the way that the sun would kind of like glisten off the, the bright white snow. And I was thinking kind of of how can I make this a sermon, <laughs> right? Because like that's what if you're a pastor, everything in life can become an illustration or at least life is one big sermon. And so here's kind of what I came up with. That uh, life is kind of like a, like a really steep kind of ski slope. And there's really kind of no way that you can stop. You can somewhat slow your way down, but it's kind of really too slippery to completely stop. And all you really get to do is really, you get to decide where you're really going to go. And that is where you really want to end. And on the, other, on the side of your snowboard, I found out the hard way. They have this thing called rails, right? And I found that out right after I got a concussion. And uh, I'm sliding down the hill, right? Um, on the side of a snowboard, they had these things called rails, right? And under the kind of the shifting balance of your weight, you can kind of dictate the side really where you want to go. And to maybe take that illustration just a little bit further, I think you and I, we kind of live life kind of leaning forward like we're on a ski slope, kind of bent on arriving at the place that we long for. And this place that we kind of long for, maybe it's a dream of some sort, a future aspiration, or maybe it's kind of just a hope for your future. But whatever it is, it's a goal. And this goal is what we really, really want from life. It's really what we really long for. It's really kind of the life that we really want. And so the question I guess I found myself asking while I was on this mountain, or at least this last week, was what are the rails that kind of direct us through our lives? In other words, what, are kind of the, what, what directs us in the real world? What sets our course for our lives? And so I, today, I guess I, I just want to push back. I want to suggest to you that really what is the, the motivating force, the, the thing that directs and guides us, is different than the way that culture and society, um, well, at least it's different than the way that we have taught, been taught, how to say this? It's different than the way that culture has decided to teach us really kind of what directs us, what really guides us, what really motivates us, what really directs us. See, in the contemporary modern world, we've really been taught that it's our mind, it's our intellect that really governs our direction, right? That, I mean, just try not going to college. And see what your mom and dad say, or what your friends will say, or something, or at least how difficult it'll be to get a job. And that's because our society places much importance on developing the mind. It's because society and culture has determined that it's really your mind that directs your world. That if you can maybe think new thoughts, or you can advance your understanding of something, that it will change your world, and that is why our culture puts so much value on education. But I think scripture alludes to something a little different. And that's why Jesus does such an incredible job in, in the book of Matthew. He kind of builds the framework of what really is the, the motivating, the thing that directs and guides our lives. He, he kind of says this in Matthew chapter 22. He says this, and it should be on the verses behind me. Teacher. And so let me give you the, kind of the framework of what's going on here. So a bunch of people come to Jesus and say, listen, um, we're Jewish people, and we've followed kind of the Old Testament. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. We know all of it. In fact, we really know the Ten Commandments. In fact, from the Ten Commandments, you can take 625 laws from the Ten Commandments. And, and so, Jesus, that's kind of confusing. So could you maybe teach us, like, what you're about? Or at least could you show us what out of all of those is the best? What is the greatest? What you really want our lives to be about? And Jesus does it. He boils down all of the Old Testament into basically a paragraph. And he says this. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So Jesus is actually doing something interesting here. He's actually reciting something the Israelites would have recited every single day. And it's called the Shema. 
And, and in it, from the earliest of ages, um, Israelites, I think at the ages of four, they would start to learn to recite this. They would memorize this. They would start saying it every day as kind of a prayer. And it's found in the book of Deuteronomy. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your heart. And here's what I really thought was interesting. What was interesting about these verses, I think, is the order in which they're delivered. You'll notice that in, in, in the first verse that we read, and Jesus kind of even alters and changes it, that the mind is mentioned, but it's not mentioned first. The heart is actually what's mentioned first. And often, and maybe it's because I went to Bible school or whatever it is, or because I've admired people who can eloquently express their Christian faith and their love for Jesus, that I've often equated holiness or spiritual formation or being near to God as being able to explain who God really is. In other words, I've equated sanctification, that's just a churchy word that really means the process of becoming like Christ, as the acquisition of knowledge that we can think our way to holiness or something along those lines. And that if you just know a lot of Bible stuff, then you must be a really, really good Christian and you must be really, really near to God. And actually, I think we know that not to be really true. See, to become more like Christ isn't just to think new things or to understand things about Jesus that we didn't know before. Let me give you maybe a silly example. So growing up, my parents smoked. And um, I hated it, right? I mean, I remember walking into my house and it'd be like a cloud of smoke, you know? And I'd walk in and I'd have to like find my way to my room, cough my way through there and I remember going through D.A.R.E. in fifth grade. You guys remember D.A.R.E.? You get to, like, the never do drugs or whatever it is, and the, the, you know, whatever. And uh, it never worked for anyone. But um, <laughs> I, I, remember, I remember, like, learning about, like, I think carcinogens, right? That's what they're called, maybe? I don't know. Cool, right? Those things. Um, and how they cause people, not to spell, uh, people, like, they cause cancer, right? And I remember learning about that and going, oh, my gosh. My parents, my parents need to know this. Right, like my 50-year-old dad needs to know that if he smokes, it's going to cause cancer, right? Like he needs to know this. And so what I would do is we just got a printer at this time, and um, I would go online to like dare.com or .org, whatever it was, and find all the facts about like cigarettes and smoke and how bad it was for you and toxic and had like rat poison. You remember the whole list? They would tell you it has like this, 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 and causes this, whatever, right? And uh, I would print them out and duct tape them to my dad's cigarettes and my mom's cigarettes. And so she'd pull out a cigarette and be like, you're going to die, whatever it was said on it, right? Like in Sharpie or whatever it was, right? And uh, do you think that it all helped them stop smoking? No. Why? Because it wasn't knowledge that my parents were lacking. It was will. It was, and when it, it was volition. And volition is just a fancy word that means willpower. It means, what, it means will. See, the other question I was asking myself was, okay, well, if it wasn't knowledge that my parents was, were lacking, it was actually willpower, it was volition, it was their desire, then where does will, where does volition, where does desire really come from? See, volition is developed in our hearts by what we truly love. And so to borrow from the illustration we used a little bit earlier, the rails of our lives, I think I have a slide for this, the rails of our lives, that which guides us, isn't our minds, it's actually our loves, it's our desire, it's what we truly treasure. See, and this is important for us to understand. This is actually what the fundamental essence of what like Christian growth really is. It's not in your mind. It's actually in your treasures. It's actually in your values. It's actually in your heart, what you love what you hold fast to. See, the core of humanity is not a brain. That's not what it means to be created in God's image. What it means to be created in God's image is not, not that we just are thinkers, but most and foremost, we are lovers. See, God knows this because he built us. He knows that we want our hearts to be consumed, to be apprehended. He has put this desire in you and he has put this desire in me. I mean, think about the many things people sink their time into, from hobbies and interests to other relationships. People are looking for things that captivate them and bring them a sense of fulfillment that can only come from filling of the heart by the things that they truly love. See, the arena of our heart 
it's, it's really interesting. It's also really tricky. The Bible says that it's deceitful above all else, but what's interesting about it is it contains powerful emotions and really powerful desires and a powerful volition, a powerful will. And ultimately, these are the things that kind of direct and steer our lives. Now, if that is true, to become more like Christ isn't just to start thinking new things. It's actually to start loving new things. I want to point you to maybe one of the most famous verses in all the New Testament. Like every Christian, when they first become a Christian, they like memorize this one. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. For God so loved the world that he gave. See, it was God's love for us that prompted action. And, it's, and that remains true for you and me. It's our loves that prompt us to action and direct our decisions, and that ultimately directs our lives. So for the Christian, and this is really important, for the Christian, real life change happens when a person starts to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Let me say that again. For a Christian, real life change happens when a person starts to love what God loves, that's holiness, and hate what God hates, that's sin. And see, this is how Christian character is truly developed. Not by doing what is right, by actually developing a heart that loves what is right. And that is a completely challenging thing to do, but that's what makes us truly like Christ. And that is because, and this is kind of a main point for us tonight, it is our affections, it's our loves that determine our devotions, our treasures, our investments, our values, which ultimately determines our direction. And it's just a complicated way to say this. Where your love is, so is your life. I mean, if if you love materialism, you're going to work, 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 work to get all those things. If you love relationships, you're going to go from relationship to relationship to relationship, trying to find some type type of fulfillment or gratification or satisfaction or something along those lines. And so the big question I want to ask tonight, and this is kind of the theme for my year, 2019, this is kind of what I want to answer this question, what does it mean like in my own life? What does it mean to love God with your heart? What does it mean to love God with your mind? What does it mean to love God with your soul? See, if Jesus said this is the greatest thing, and if you call yourself a Christian, you need to understand this, then you and I should probably think about it. You guys should probably invest some energy in thinking about this question. If Jesus boiled 39 books of the Old Testament, 1,500 years, three different languages on three different continents, and boiled it down to a paragraph, then it has to be something you and I need to think about. What does it look like to love God with your mind, your heart, and your soul? So tonight, I just want to break that into three parts. And, and this, is, this could be an entire degree, and we're only going to spend the next 20 minutes probably on it. But the first question that I want to ask is, what does it mean to love God with your heart? Well, first we need to ask, what, what is the heart? And no, the heart isn't this this organ that just pumps blood through your body. See, the Bible mentions the human heart almost 300 times. And in essence, this is what the Bible says. The heart is the spiritual part of us where our affections, our loves, our treasures are developed. Essentially, where you treasure most is created in your heart. And so the other question we need to ask, okay, if it's difficult for you and I to love God with our heart, thus that's why Jesus is talking about it, what has gone wrong with the human heart? In other words, why is it difficult now for us to love God with our heart? See, it is difficult for you and I to love God with our heart because we are born with a heart that hates God. That's what, that's what Scripture says. Our hearts have been infected by sin, and that has caused us to desire things and treasure things that God doesn't desire and God doesn't tre- treasure. In fact, in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, 21, Jesus said this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I think the, the greatest consequence of a heart that is infected with sin is it starts to treasure things that it shouldn't. It starts to be captivated by things that it shouldn't be captivated by. It starts to make things God that aren't God. In short, it starts to make idols. And it's caused us to place our treasure, that which we love the most or value the most, on a stock that's kind of plummeting, on a ship that is sinking. I mean, think about this. This is the image I get for when I look at like, a lot of the way that I spend a lot of my time, I spend a lot of my mental energy. It's almost as if like I withdraw all of my treasures or whatever else you value, money, whatever it may be, and I put it on the Titanic, knowing that it's going 
to sink. How stupid would that be? It'd be pretty idiotic. Yet you and I do the exact same thing every day. See, we know that this world is fading away and it's not going to be here forever. Yet you and I put our treasures and hopes in the things of this world. Things like materialism. Things like advancement. Things like even our careers. We even place our value in our performance in certain arenas and areas of our lives or even in our accolades. See, I'm not saying that those things are bad, but they were never designed to be our ultimate. They were never designed to be God, the thing that we treasure the most. And see, if you want to know what you truly love, it's what you daydream about the most. If you want to know what you truly love, it's what you think about the most in your free time. It's what you Google the most. See, if you're an apathetic Christian, and we my apathetic Christian is one who's has fallen out of love with Jesus, one who's lazy and lethargic and apathetic. If you're an apathetic Christian, your apathy or your boredom can be traced back to a heart that has misplaced loves, misplaced affections. See, your greatest treasure, that which you love the most, is no longer Christ. It has become something else. And so loving God with your heart means making him your greatest treasure, valuing that relationship more than anything. And you guys know what it means to value something. You value school, so you put in the time to get good grades. You value your career, so you work extra hours or whatever it may be. You value whatever it is that you value. You know what it means. It means that you invest in it. The second question we need to ask tonight is, what does it mean to love God with our soul? I remember in high school, there was this girl that would walk around at our lunch period, and she would, every other week, would try to sell her soul to people for $100. And I always thought that, what? Like, I don't know what's going on in your life, but whatever, whatever right? And I always remember that. And, and what... What is the soul? I mean, it's something, but, but it's a kind of a challenging, fickle thing. Whenever you read the New Testament or even the Old Testament, the Bible's not entirely clear as what the human soul is, but from studying kind of the way the word is used in the Bible, we can come up with some definitions. The human soul is kind of the part of a person that's not physical. It's the part that's actually fashioned in God's image. See, in Genesis chapters 1, verse 127, it says that you and I are created in God's image. That doesn't mean that God has hands and feet and kneecaps. That's not what it means. What it does mean, though, is, is when you and I are creating God's image, it means there's a part of you that will exist for eternity, and that's your soul. It's the most inner part of really who you are. See, more fundamentally, the soul is kind of the part of us that is our identity. It's the inner self. Whenever you hear other Christians or pastors talking about the soul, I want you to think of this. I want you to think of the soul as the core of really who you are. And see, to love the Lord with all your soul means to love him in the way we live, in the choices that we make, and in the behavior and in the lifestyle we adopt. So I want to ask you guys some, some questions that I often ask myself. The first question I ask, and I think I have a slide for this, is how do I spend my money? That'll really kind of show me what I really treasure, where I'm really investing and devoting my life. What do I do with my time? What kinds of things do I read? In other words, in my free time, where does my idle mind take me? What are the things I'm reading? What are the things I'm looking at? And what are the things that give me comfort in difficult times? So the answer to those questions will demonstrate whether we love God with all our soul or truly if we love something else. And the last question is, what does it mean to love God with your mind? Well, again, we need to ask, if it's difficult for you and I to love God with our mind, what has happened to the mind? When theologians speak of a, kind of our mind and, and, and how sin is affected, they use the word noetic sin. Noetic sin kind of refers to the sense in which the, the faculty of thinking, our, our, the, the, the organ of our brain, um, has been kind of seriously disturbed and kind of corrupted by the fall. The, I think the greatest effect that sin has really had on our minds is it's kind of clouded it, right? It... it it's kind of caused mankind to ignore and deny that we have a creator, a God that has created you and created me. And in some ways, that delusion that there is no God has kind of allowed people to come up with pretty absurd realities. Let me give you an example. I've shared with you that I don't really come from a Christian family. I have an older sister, and um, I remember a few years ago, um, she was telling me, when I told her I became a Christian, 
Um, she said, that's an illusion that brings you peace because the world is too big and scary for you. I said, love you too. Um, and I said, okay, well, what, what do you believe? And she said, well, most likely, and I'll quote her, she said, you probably are a figment of my imagination. That makes sense. And as we were standing in my house, she didn't point over to her son, who was like five at the time, and she said, most likely, he probably doesn't exist. He probably just exists in my mind. So I told her, I said, all right, grab your stuff real quick. Pick up your son, Ben, and let's walk over to the street. I said, close your eyes, close Ben's eyes, and uh, walk into the street where you can hear the cars rushing by and the buses and everything like that. And she just said, no. And I said, why not? And she didn't give me an answer. And I said, because reality will hit you. A bus, something is going to take you out, right? That's why. It's, a, it's, an absurd, it's an absurdity. Her worldview is absurd. And oftentimes when I meet with people who don't believe in God or whatever it means, if you really get down to really what the core of what they believe, it's, it's kind of absurd that you and I are, are cosmic orphans. What I mean by that is that we're a mistake. Evolution or Big Bang cosmology, it, it, you don't really have any real value. See, if God is not real, you have no real value. And, there, and, and every worldview answers four essential questions. Why am I here? Why does your heart beat inside your chest? If there is no God, you have to create some definition or some, some meaning, and it's fake. You've created it. Where do I go when I die? That's your destiny. Right? When, I, when my, my like, heart stops beating in my chest, what happens? Do you become ground? Do you become fertilizer? Do you become a tree? Or, I mean, what, what ends up happening? What is right and what is wrong? Morality. And see, I haven't found in any other worldview other than the Christian worldview, that you can answer those questions and have them make sense. So in light of the effects kind of of noetic sin, what does it really look like to love God with our mind? I think there's two things that I want to I show you. The first is that I, I think God is, uh, the first part is we need to pursue truth. So I think the mind was specifically developed, like, I think God created the mind uniquely. And I think he created it uniquely because he wants us to discover truth. It was why God created us with the ability to reason. I mean, that's really kind of what separates us from the animal kingdom. He's given us a mind to rationally and, and, and in a way kind of understand the world around us, this higher level cognition that no other animal gets to have. So I think Christians are supposed to be kind of reasonable people who have wisdom. And that's not to say that you and I are supposed to be theologians and supposed to be scientists and things along the, those lines, but I think it is to say that you and I are, are to have reasons for why we believe what we believe. Now more than ever, you're going to be challenged for believing what you believe as we move towards a postmodern kind of secular culture. The other part of this is you've got to get in your Bible. The Bible is, is, is the most important book in human history. It's the only book in human history that has existed in its original content since antiquity. And another thing is, if the only, t- if the only way that you are in your Bible is on a Sunday night, then you're going to have a very shallow and weak faith that isn't going to change you, and it's not going to change the community around you, and it's not going to change the world around us, which is the type of faith that God wants you and I to have. I read a quote many years ago that says, the Bible, is not special, uh, the Bible is not cake for special occasions. It's daily bread that needs to be consumed daily. The other part of this is I think that we need to stop filling our mind with trash. Stop filling our mind with keeping up with the Kardashians and all the other craziness and Cardi B and all the other type of stuff, the garbage of our culture. See, I think our mind is an incredible organ. I was kind of reading some things on it. Uh, the human brain has over 100 billion neurons. That's more neurons than there are stars in the universe. And in fact, in general, men have bigger brains, but the hippocampus, which is the part dealing with memory, is larger in women. If you've ever been in a relationship, you don't have to be true. I'm just kidding. See, see another really interesting thing is that our brains kind of, they, they change every single day. And this is incredibly important when it comes to not filling your brain with kind of trash, with garbage. 
Years ago, I had a conversation with a sixth grade student. Uh, he came up to me after one of the services and asked if he could talk with me. I said, yeah, what's going on? And he just kind of broke down crying. And so I put my arm around him and I said, well, what's going on, man? And he began to tell me that every day for the last two years, since he was kind of in fourth grade, he would lock his door at night and he would watch pornography for hours until early morning. I said, well, how has that affected you? And he told me that since he started doing that, he cannot think about a girl the same and he cannot not undress a girl in his mind. This is a sixth grade boy. See, pornography really has rewired his brain. See, our, our brains are moldable and adaptable, and they, they remain that way our entire life, meaning that you, you can physically change the physiological structure of your brain based off the inputs that you give it. This is called neuroplasticity, and I think it's actually a gift that God has given us, but it also can be a curse, because if you're filling your brain with trash, you're literally wiring it in a very certain way to think a certain way. That's why so many people, and I, I very much believe in, in clinical depression, I think that sin has even affected the neurochemistry of our brain, but I think that a lot of people can't get themselves out of oppression because it's a certain pattern of thinking. That's what the New Testament says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so what Netflix shows are you watching? What music are you listening to? What movies are you watching? How are those things affecting the way that you see yourself, the way that you see God, and the way that you see others? See, loving God with your mind is all about pursuing truth, and that is what God says. And the second part is not filling your mind with trash. And so we ask, okay, well, what does this all mean for us? And we'll kind of wrap up with this. Well, it means that God has not called you and called me to kind of conjure up this life-consuming love out of thin air. It means that we love God more the more we remind ourselves of how much God loves us. That's the answer to this. In 1 John 4, 19, it says this, we love because he first loved us. And so here's the reality, and we'll kind of wrap up with this. In the noise of this world, and I want you to hear me, in the noise of this world, it can be a difficult thing to remind yourself of how much truly you are truly loved. And if Satan can't make you bad, he will make you busy so that you forget who you really are, how much you really are loved, and whose you really are. So as we wrap up today, I want to give you three points of application. The first application is for your, is for your, your heart, and I think I have a slide for this. To allow your heart to remember how much he loves you. One of the things I pray often is, God, will you show me myself through your eyes? Will you show me how much you deeply love and care for me? Another thing I do is I often look in Scripture to try to find people that were difficult to love, and I see how God cared for them. You know, one of my favorite books in the Old Testament is the book of Hosea, and um, there's a phrase in there. It's kind of an old English term that isn't used in modern English, but it is maiden of my eye. And God is calling you and I in that book the maiden of his eye. Now, that's something that doesn't make sense, but what it means is if you've ever gotten so close to somebody that you get to see your reflection in their eye, that means that you are the maiden of their eye. God calls you, God calls me the maiden of his eye. He thinks about you, he loves you, and he cares for you. The second part is for your soul. Make the choice to daily recharge your soul in solitude in prayer. See, so much of prayer, I think, has been taught wrong. So much of prayer is in solitude. It doesn't mean you have to, like, sit there and talk. It just means you sit there and be quiet which is an incredibly difficult thing to do in the 21st century, is to sit there and be quiet for 10 minutes and say, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quiet my mind and ask that you just speak to me. The last is for your mind, is to fill your mind with his words daily. Set this year, 2019, as it starts in a few days. Be the year that you set the discipline that you're going to read your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love to give you a Bible. Go online and find a Bible reading chart and follow it every day. Make this the year where you fill your mind with God's truth. I promise you, I promise you it'll change your life. As we close tonight, let me urge you not just to try harder, but to remind yourself 
of how far God was willing to go for you and I. That'll develop a deep passion of love that you have for God. It'll, it'll help you and I love God with our, all of our hearts, all of our souls, and all of our minds. Let me pray for us. God, to be honest with you, over the last few weeks, I've been kind of reminded of that I just give you my leftovers. I don't really spend the time that I say I spend with you. I don't... God, will you just show me this year what it means to love you with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my mind? And Father, I pray that same thing over these people here, and I ask God that this year be a year, God, where we make you a priority in our lives. We make a lot of things a priority. We make relationships. We make school. We make materialism. We make our jobs. We make a lot of things priority, but God, the only thing that will last forever is our relationship with you. And so, Father, I ask that you empower us, God, and encourage this year, God, to just place more stock in our relationship with you. Invest more time, God, with you, because you could have not gone farther to show how much you love us, how much you care for us, and how much you cherish us. And so, Father, let that message sink into our hearts and allow us to compel us, God, to just live closer to you and your will for our lives. Father, we love you, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.